Good morning, church. Uh, the great theologian, Kenny Chesney, once sang, Everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to go now. now obviously, Kenny Chesney is not a great theologian. He's a country music singer, but I'm not sure he realizes just how profoundly true that assessment is. Now, on Easter, we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. As Christians, this is a joyous occasion because we believe that in Him we have eternal life. And yet so many people who profess faith in Jesus fear death or approach death as if it's the loss of everything. Now, this past week I was reading a short article by, about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a pastor and a theologian in Germany during World War II, and he was involved in a plot to overthrow the Nazi regime and to assassinate Hitler. He was caught, he was sentenced to death, and as he was ascending the steps to the gallows, he looked at his fellow prisoner, and these were his last recorded words. He said, this is the end. For me, the beginning of life. My burden in this message is the same burden that Jesus has in the passage that we're going to look at this morning for Lazarus and Mary and Martha and the crowds. The burden is that I want you to see Jesus's glorious resurrection power with the eyes of faith so that you may believe and have your life transformed. And I don't just mean a believing that's in your head. My desire is that this belief would take root in your heart and would change everything, not just about the way that you approach death, but everything about the way that you live. My desire is that this belief would drive out the fear of death from your life and that it would give you an excited anticipation to reach what the Apostle Paul calls the end of the race. I want Christians, quite frankly, to see dying as gain, the way that the Apostle Paul puts it in Philippians chapter 1. So we're going to be in John chapter 11 this morning. Um, the book of John is the fourth book in the New Testament, and you can turn there in your Bibles at home uh, if you have your Bible. And we're also going to have uh, the words here on the screen. And uh, I'm going to read the first part of the story. I'm going to read part of the story and I'll also tell part of the story. So let's start in John chapter 11 and I'm going to begin in verse 1. Here's what the word of God says. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. So let's stop for a moment here and kind of get our bearings, set the stage. So Jesus, in John chapter 10, he's just crossed over the Jordan River from Judea where the Jews had tried to stone him. Uh, they were really 
uh, angry at him. He, so he has uh, left Judea and he's gotten word that his friend is very sick. And one of the things I want to point out to you in this passage is that multiple times here, uh, John is emphasizing to us how close the relationship was between Jesus and Lazarus and then Lazarus's sisters, Mary and Martha. So in verse 2, he John points out that it was Mary, this is the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair. Uh, then in verse 3, um, it, uh, it says, So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. And then again in verse 5, John says, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, Jesus had a special relationship with Lazarus and Mary and Martha. It wasn't just any relationship. He, they were close family friends. He loved them dearly. He had a close bond with them. Okay, And so that's the, the first important thing to point out here. Now, if you got word, and Jesus gets word that Lazarus is sick, and if you had gotten word that one of your best friends was sick, what's the first thing that you would probably want to do? You'd probably want to go call them or visit them or what can I do? But that's not what Jesus did, is it? Instead of immediately going to heal Lazarus or going to help Lazarus, it says that he waited. And only after waiting two days does Jesus then go to see Lazarus. And the disciples are confused at this point. As, as we keep going, we're not going to read this part. And as we, as we go through verses 7 to 16, after waiting two days, Jesus decides to go see Lazarus, which is in Judea. And the disciples are like, Jesus, we can't go there. They literally just tried to stone you a couple of days ago. What are you thinking? And Jesus basically responds. He says, um, it's not my time to go yet. Uh, he says in verse uh, 9, he says, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he doesn't stumble because he sees the light of the world. And so what Jesus is explaining to them is that uh, there are 12 hours in a day and uh, my day or my ministry is not yet complete. Uh, so he basically tells them, guys, I'm not worried about being stoned and I'm not worried about losing my life. That's not going to happen until I say it's going to happen. And so uh, he says, Lazarus is asleep and I'm going to wake him up. And then the disciples are like, well, Jesus, I mean, if he's asleep, he's going to wake up. Come on. And Jesus is like, guys, Lazarus is dead. So he just kind of tells him straight up in verse 14. He says, Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there. Now, here's the big question in this passage for Mary, for Martha, for the crowds that we're going to see, and really the big question for us. If God loves us, why does he allow pain and suffering? It, it says very clearly here in our text that Jesus loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus, but he let Lazarus die. I mean, after all, we've already seen, you know, you know the first 10 chapters of John, Jesus has healed many people. We know he has the ability to heal the sick. He can uh, restore the sight of the blind. He can make the deaf hear. Uh, but yet when he hears that his friend whom he loves is sick, he stays where he's at and he doesn't go to help him. Why? And the love of Jesus gets called into question in this passage several times. After Jesus arrives, uh, Lazarus has already been dead for four days. I want to point out to you some of his encounters that he has. First, look at verse 21. Um, 
He uh, says that Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. That's what Martha says in verse 21. Then we skip over to verse 32. Jesus uh, uh, encounters Mary and she says essentially the same thing. It says, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. There's a sadness about these responses. It's, I mean, it's pretty clear as you kind of read through this story that Mary and Martha, they, they still love Jesus. Uh, they still trust Jesus, but they don't understand why Jesus didn't come to heal. They, they, in their minds, they think if Jesus could have just gotten here sooner, everything would have been okay. Lazarus wouldn't have died. But the unbelief of the crowds was, was a lot more cynical than Mary and Martha. Look at verse 36 and 37. The crowds, some kind of openly just question Jesus' love. It says that uh, as Jesus was weeping at Lazarus' um, uh, tomb, it says the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? In other words, it's kind of an accusatory question. They're like, if Jesus really loved Lazarus, he would have done something about it. He wouldn't have just let him die. So there were people openly questioning whether Jesus actually loved Lazarus. And you may have heard something that sounds a lot like that before. Maybe you've even said something that sounds a lot like that before. How many pronounced judgment upon God because God did not do what they asked him to do or didn't answer a specific prayer at a specific time. I just want you to know if that's, if that's you this morning, if you are angry at God because he uh, has allowed some suffering in your life or he, or maybe there was a prayer that you prayed that didn't get answered. I want you to know I was, I was praying for you specifically uh, just leading up as I was preparing the sermon. And like my, my longing and my desire for you is that you would see the goodness of God even in the midst of, of suffering. And I pray that you'd see the goodness of God in this passage as we work through. I've been praying specifically for you. So I, I pray that you would just stick with me to the end and listen to what the Word of God has to say. I want you to know that, that Jesus has compassion for you in your suffering. Now, the question being asked again uh, and answered in this passage is, if Jesus loved Lazarus, then why did he let him die? Um, and again, you may have asked a similar question. Maybe for you, it's a loved one who died that you prayed for their healing. Maybe it's healing for your own body that hasn't come. Maybe it's provision of a job or entrance into a specific school that never happened. Or maybe it's the gift of a spouse as you long for marriage that hasn't been answered. If Jesus really loves me, then why didn't he heal? Why hasn't he provided? What is he doing in the midst of suffering and loss? That's the question. And Jesus gives two answers here in this passage that I want to show you. Two profound answers. The first uh, kind of response, the first uh, thing Jesus shows us and Mary and Martha is Jesus shows his supreme worth. Jesus shows his supreme worth. I want you to look with me at verses 5 and 6 of John 11. They're some of the most stunning verses in the Bible when you really 
look at the implications of what it's saying. Look at it. It says that, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. So look at the logic here of what this passage is saying. It's saying that Jesus loved Lazarus and Mary and Martha, so he let Lazarus die. Like on the surface, how does that make any sense at all? Well, clearly what this is telling us is that there was something Jesus wanted even more for Mary, Martha, and Lazarus than for Lazarus's healing. There was something that he placed a higher priority on. What is that? What could possibly be more valuable than Lazarus's life? Well, there's two clues in this passage. One in verse 4 and one in verse 15. Look at verse 4. Before all of this even happens, it says, When Jesus heard that Lazarus was ill, he says, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Key phrase there is, it is for the glory of God. That's one of the reasons that Jesus allowed Lazarus to die. Now, that may be an unsatisfying answer for some. I mean, okay, it's great, it's for God's glory, but how is that good for me? How is that loving for me, for Jesus to allow suffering in my life just for His glory? Well, the reason is that the most loving thing God could do for you is to reveal more of himself to you. In other words, to show you his glory. That's the most loving thing that God could do for you. Even if that means it has to come through hardship or through suffering or through death. Why? Because there's nothing greater in all the universe than God. In fact, if God were to give you anything other than himself, he would be loving you less. For God to give you something other than himself is less loving than for him to give you himself. There's nothing greater he could give you than the gift of himself. There's nothing greater God could show you than his own glory. Because God is the most glorious, all-satisfying, all-mighty thing in the universe. And above the universe, he could give you everything that you want, the spouse, the house, the health, and the wealth, and it would be less loving than the gift of himself. First Samuel chapter two, verse two says, there is no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there is no one besides you, nor is there any rock like our God. Jesus said to the woman at the well in John chapter four, verse 14, He said, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. Only Jesus can satisfy in that way. No other gift that Jesus could give can satisfy us the way that Jesus can. Because we were created by God for God to be satisfied in God. Therefore, the greatest thing that God can do is reveal his glory himself to us. Jesus wanted his glory to be displayed through the death and resurrection of Lazarus, not simply to show his power, but for the benefit of those he loves. Skip down with me to verse 14 and 15. He basically says the same thing and makes the same argument to the disciples here in verse 14 and 15. 
says that Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. So again, Jesus says, guys, I'm glad Lazarus died and that I wasn't there because there's something even more important I desire for you and for Lazarus than the preservation of his life. I want you to see the display of my glory and belief. Notice those words, so that you may believe. Nothing is more important. Nothing could be better for the disciples or even Lazarus. The most loving thing God can do for you is give you more of himself. And the the apostle Paul understood this. It's why he said things like, uh, my desire is to depart and be with Christ for that is far better. He said that in Philippians chapter one, verse 23. Or in Colossians 1, 24, Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, the church. You don't say things like, I rejoice in my sufferings unless there is something that you are gaining that is far more valuable than comfort and health and even your life. (laughs) Unless there's something that is greater than all of those things. That's the only way you say a phrase like, I rejoice in my sufferings. That that something that Paul discovered is Christ. It's why he could say in Philippians 4, I've learned the secret of being content in any situation, whether I have plenty or I'm in need. What's the secret? Jesus is the secret. He learned that Christ is all satisfying. There's nothing greater that God could give you than the gift of himself. And God often uses the refining fire of suffering and loss to show us that. My, uh, one of my uh, good friends and uh, the man that uh, led me to the Lord and taught me how to follow Jesus, his name's Josh Harris, uh, and he has a, a motto, a phrase that he always says. And he says, you never know God is all you need until God is all you have. It's very true. Now, there's two questions I want to pose and answer in light of Jesus's worth being shown in allowing Lazarus to die. Um, two, two kind of follow-up questions to this point. The first question is this, how is God glorified when he doesn't heal? Because perhaps you'd respond to this story, okay, Jared, it's easy to understand how Jesus was glorified in Lazarus's case, because we know the end of the story. He raises Lazarus from the dead. There's, there's a happy ending, right? But what about for those who don't get raised from the dead? What about me? My loved one wasn't raised from the dead. Or what about me? My healing didn't come. Or my prayer wasn't answered. How is God glorified in that? There's a woman named Joni Erickson Tata. Um, she's an incredible woman of God. Um, she's a uh, written a lot of books and uh, just has uh, she, she goes and she goes around testifying and sharing her story uh, and speaking and she broke her neck in a diving accident at the age of 17 and she became a quadriplegic um, and 
she has suffered a great deal during her lifetime. She's also a cancer survivor. Um, but she has given her life to proclaiming the goodness of God in the face of suffering. And she said this uh, in an article I, re- I read that she wrote. Over the years, I have come to see that saying yes to hardships is the highest expression of my faith in God, as well as the most glorious experience a Christian can have. We show the surpassing worth of God by rejoicing in Him despite the loss of earthly treasure. Jesus did this in Gethsemane. When you think about it, His desire was for the cup to pass. He said, Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. Yet not what I will, but yours be done. So his desire, that his personal desire was for the cup to pass, but his greater desire was the will of the Father. On the night of his arrest, he's praying to the Father in John 17, 2, and he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you. That was his aim. That was his greatest desire. So the Father was glorified in the Son in that the Son willingly and joyfully submitted to the will of the Father. When we can look at death like the Apostle Paul and say to die is gain because when I die, I will be with Christ, I gain Him, it shows that we treasure Jesus more than life, more than comfort, more than anything else that we could possibly lose here, He is better. And that brings glory to God, even in the midst of great loss and suffering, even as we're on the doorstep of death. That glorifies Jesus. It makes much of Him. It makes Him look great. So yes, God is most certainly glorified in the life of the believer, even when the healing doesn't come, even when the groaning carries on. Here's the other question I want to answer. How could God be using this season to give you more of himself? We're in the midst of a time of global suffering. The economic impact and the deaths will continue to climb in the coming days amidst the coronavirus pandemic. And all of us have had our lives drastically altered. We did not plan on having Easter services streamed online. This was not our plan. My family did not plan on having uh, our adoption put on pause uh, as we seek to adopt children internationally. Uh, There are many people's lives who've been disrupted. But what I want you to do is ask, how could God be using the stripping away of coping mechanisms, of comforts, of control, to bring you to your knees and into a greater intimacy with Him like you've never had before? How could God be using this suffering to give you the gift of Himself, to show you His glory? I'm convinced that the greatest need in our day is men and women who will get on their faces and call out to God in prayer. We need churches and leaders and disciples who will cast off dependence upon drawing big crowds and having big budgets and building buildings. I believe God will use this current moment 
to raise up men and women who will do just that, who will give themselves to prayer, who will call upon God, who will beseech the throne of grace and plead to God for revival. I I want to encourage you and urge you to take this season to devote yourself to prayer. Get in a quiet place on a consistent basis. Open up your Bible and start praying through Scripture. Do the P-R-A-Y acronym. Praise, repent, ask, yield. What can I praise God for in this passage? What do I need to repent of that I see in this passage? Or or how can I respond to this passage? What can I ask God for? Who can I pray for? What can I ask God for in my life? And then yield, how can I surrender my life? How am I going to take the Word of God and apply it and commit to following Him today, this week, based on what I see in God's Word? Start doing that every day. Husbands, start praying with your wives. And let's pray together, joining corporate prayer. You can join us this Wednesday night, 7 p.m. We're going to have a time of corporate prayer together as a church. You know, and maybe, maybe you have never known God like this at all. Maybe for you, all of this is new to you, and I sound like a crazy ter- person talking about how glorious and how all-satisfying Jesus is. And you're like, man, this dude like, is way over the top on this Christianity thing. My, my prayer, my encouragement to you is Psalm 34, 8. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see that the Lord is good this Easter. I long for you to do that. I want you to taste and see that the Lord is good. I long for you to know Him. I think about individual people in my life who I love and, and long for them to know Jesus like this. Long for them to know these glorious realities. And perhaps... God is using these hard times to get your attention, friend. And I pray that He is. The question being asked and answered in this passage is, if Jesus loved Lazarus, then why did He let him die? And the first answer is that Jesus shows His supreme worth. And the second answer is that Jesus shows His supreme power. Look with me at uh, verse 20. Let's skip down to verse 20 of our passage, John chapter 11. I'm going to read through verse 27. Here's what it says. It says, So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Now, there's so much that we can learn from Martha's exchange here with Jesus. Uh, One of the things that's striking is that though Martha struggles with doubt, she still loves Jesus. and She's clearly not mad at him. Um, Just look there again at verse 22. Uh, She says, you know, even even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. So she still has confidence in Jesus. She still believes that Jesus can heal. She still loves Jesus, has affection for Jesus, um, but she just doesn't see what Jesus can do now. 
uh, it's Lazarus is dead. It's too late. And so uh, she doesn't see how Jesus is going to be able to do anything with this situation. If Jesus had gotten here earlier, maybe he could have done something. And then in verse 24, uh, she comforts herself uh, by uh, kind of stating this, this with this abstract belief in the resurrection on the last day. She says, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Now, I mean, this is just my opinion, uh, but I, I mean, from my uh, reading of this text and as I studied this, I think that she genuinely believed that. I think she genuinely believed in the resurrection on the last day, but I, I do, it, it does uh, become pretty apparent that this was like an abstract belief for her. She still didn't grasp who she was talking to, who was standing in front of her. And it was almost more like she was using this belief as a coping mechanism to hold on to. And this whole exchange is so striking to me because it resembles how most people, including Christians, react to death today. Uh, think about some of the things that you'll hear at funerals or when you know people announce that somebody's passed away. We've gained another angel in heaven. Or my loved one is looking down on me. Or, you know, she's dancing with the angels in heaven. These religious platitudes are often repeated to bring some semblance of comfort because people are grieving. They, they need something to hold on to. They need something that can bring them hope in that moment. And so they'll cling to these sayings, not really thinking through what they're saying or, or is there even any basis for this belief, but they need something to grasp a hold of, but it's not really rooted in reality. It maybe it feels kind of good to say it, and so I'm just going to cling to it. But they don't bring real peace or joy or hope. And one of the saddest things for me is to watch Christians approaching death with terror and sadness. And my prayer is that if that's you, my prayer is that you'll never be the same after today. My prayer is that your eyes would be open to the glory of Jesus' resurrection power today. Jesus looks at Martha in this passage and he says, he says, I'm paraphrasing here. He says, I've got good news that is so much better than a religious platitude that's going to make you feel good. I've got much better news than that. Look again what he says in verse 25. He says, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Jesus didn't say, I can raise the dead. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus doesn't just have access to power over death. He is life itself. He is resurrection power itself. One of the most amazing passages is uh, the chapter before in John chapter 10, verse 17 and 18. Jesus says this. This is such an astounding passage. He says, no one can take my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. That's amazing. That is an astounding passage. Be astonished at the glory of God. What love is in that passage? What power? It, 
I have the authority to lay my life down and I have the authority to take it up again. D.A. Carson is a Bible commentator and teacher and author and he says, just as Jesus not only gives bread from heaven, but is the bread that came down from heaven, he not only raises the dead, but is the resurrection and the life. Jesus wants to take us from an abstract future hope to a fixed, assured hope in a person, himself. If you want to live, then life is found in Jesus and in Jesus alone. Guys, eternal life is not an abstract wish upon a star hope that we repeat to comfort ourselves when facing death. Religious platitudes create immature, joyless Christians who will wilt like a leaf in the heat of the sun when trials come their way. They are not helpful. We need substantial, we need substantive hope. We need real hope. We need truth. And that hope is rooted in a person, Jesus Christ. Here's the gospel. Let me just give you the gospel, the good news of Uh, of Jesus Christ. This is the gospel that we're celebrating this Easter. The gospel is that you are dead in your trespasses and sins. You've rebelled against God. You've committed treason. And the wrath of God towards sin is coming on judgment day. And apart from Christ, you will pay the penalty for your sin. You will spend an eternity in hell, in eternal torment, separated from God forever. But God, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that whoever believes in him doesn't have to perish, but has that eternal life. What makes that possible is that God incarnate, Jesus Christ, came and dwelt among us. He took on flesh so that he could go to the cross. That's what we celebrated on Good Friday. Jesus went to the cross. He suffered and died as an atonement for the sin of all who believe. His blood purchases us out of slavery to sin, out of slavery to death. He pays our sin debt that we owe with his blood. He died and three days later, Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus died the death that you deserve and he rose from the dead to give you the life that there's no way you could have in any other way. The grave could not hold him. 1 Corinthians 15 says, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? If you trust in Jesus, then all of your sin debt was prayed for at the cross. And your sins are forgiven. And if you trust in Jesus, you will be raised with him. Not raised to be an angel floating on a cloud, playing a harp in this far off place in the sky called heaven. That's not a biblical view of eternal life. No, Jesus was raised from the dead bodily. You will be raised from the dead bodily. You will have a new glorified body. Jesus says, everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? This is what Jesus is showing Mary and Martha and the disciples and us in this story. All right, just Let's look at how the, the story concludes in verses 39 to 44. So Jesus is deeply moved. 
Uh, he's weeping, uh, not just over the fact that Lazarus has died, but also at the grief of all the people around, uh, probably also at their unbelief. And so verse 39, we read, Jesus said, take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. Jesus, he's decomposing already, is what she's saying. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with cloth. And I love this last part, just such a super practical thing. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Hey guys, don't just stand there looking at him. Help the dude get out of his grave cloth so that he can walk around. He's not dead anymore. I mean, you just think about the scene there and people are just dumbfounded. They're flabbergasted as they're watching this scene. They're probably in awe. They're probably frozen with terror and with fear and with joy all at once. And they're just like standing there, like looking at him. And Jesus, I just imagine him looking at them going, guys, can you go like unwrap him so that he can be free? Are you seeing the purpose of what Jesus is doing here? Because Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, He let Lazarus die so that he could reveal his glorious resurrection power to those he loves. Not just to Mary and Martha then, but also to us now. It's recorded. Scripture is, all Scripture is given to us is profitable for teaching and for proof and for correction. All Scripture is is there to build us up, is for our good. And this passage right here was recorded so that we also could witness Jesus' resurrection power. And what Jesus is doing here is he's giving a picture of the future of all who trust in him. Just like Lazarus, we uh, are going to die a physical death unless Jesus returns first. But to be absent in the body is to be present with the Lord. So like Lazarus, whoever lives and believes in Jesus, though he die, yet shall he live. That's what Jesus is trying to say in verse 25 to Martha. You know, Martha is distraught that Lazarus has died and Jesus is trying to say, Martha, listen, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever lives and believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. So Lazarus' story, his illness did not end in death. In a sense, yes, Lazarus died a physical death, but that wasn't the end of the story. And your story, if you're in Christ, will not end in death. There's no scary in-between time. If you've trusted in Christ, you are not going to die in the ultimate sense either. The moment you take your last breath, you will be in the presence of the Lord. And that's because when you trust in Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes and dwells within you. The same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. Romans 8.11 says that if the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you in you. So you don't need to fear death. Now, 
Does this mean that it demonstrates a lack of faith to grieve the loss of a loved one? Uh, no, it does not. And I did want to take a moment to address this um, because I recognize that there are uh, some of you who have lost loved ones. And some of you maybe right now are grieving the loss of a loved one. And maybe some of you who have relatives that are sick and right now you are scared for them and you are praying that God heals them. And I want you to know it is right and it is good uh, to pray. And oftentimes God will heal. It's not God's will to heal right here and the right now every single time, um, but it is appropriate to pray for healing. Uh, and it's also appropriate to, to weep whenever God doesn't heal or whenever God doesn't answer prayer in the way that we were hoping for. Uh, that's why verse 35 is so important. It's just a little verse, but it says Jesus wept. I wish I had more time to unpack that, that verse. It's such a powerful little verse. But basically, uh, we worship a God who both reigns on the throne in heaven and also gets down into the dirt with us and weeps. He is high and exalted and he is near. Have you suffered pain? So is Jesus. Have you mourned the loss of a loved one? So is Jesus. Have you been abandoned by close friends? So is Jesus. Have you suffered physical pain? So is Jesus. Have you been unfairly treated? Falsely accused? So is Jesus. Psalm 34:18 says the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. And, oh, the psalmist had no clue just how true those words really were when he penned them. Little did the psalmist know that hundreds of years later, the Lord would come and dwell amongst us and endure all the same sufferings that we have. Guys, we worship a God who came and dwelt among us and lived and faced the same temptations and the same sufferings as us. God knows your suffering. Death and suffering are not good. They are evil. Jesus came to vanquish them. But as Christians, we don't have to grieve as those who have no hope. And that's the huge difference. My longing for you this Easter is that in, a face, in the face of a global pandemic, while all the world around us panics at death or the loss of homes or the loss of 401ks or jobs, my desire for you is that you would have indestructible joy. We so need Christians like that. And I want you to be like that. My desire is that you would look at death the same way the Apostle Paul did uh, at the end of his life. Uh, listen to what Paul says. He's writing to Timothy, 2 Timothy 4, 7 and 8. And he's coming to the end of his life. He says this. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. If you are a Christian, your death is not the tragic end to a story. It's the finish line of a race where you are about to receive the prize. Now that will change the way you live and the way you die when you realize that. And we're full circle here. If Jesus is your greatest treasure, and if in Him you will be raised to life, then death is not loss for the Christian. 
like the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 1.20, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Because when you die, you get your greatest treasure, which is Jesus. You get to be with Him. You are given the gift of the greatest reality in all the universe. Full In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Christian, you got to believe that. Christian, the end of your life is not a tragedy. The end of your life is the finish line to a race where you're about to receive the prize. You're about to receive the greatest thing you could ever be given. God's about to give you the fullness of the greatest joy that is ever possible. You're about to have it life abundantly. No more death. No more pandemic. No more sorrow. No more depression. No more sin. No more separation from God. It's all right there on the other side of death. We need Christians who believe this, and oh, I long for you to believe it. I long for you to believe this and to to grasp hold of it and to have it transform your life. It'll change the way you die, but it'll also change the way you live. And that is indestructible joy that cannot be taken. That that the, the loss of no thing can take that joy from us. It changes everything about our lives now. The way that you grieve, It changes the way you pray. Think about the confidence it gives you in the way that you pray. It changes the way you read your Bible because now you're going to your Bible, you're devouring that thing for promises. I need God's promises. These are true for me. I'm a child of God. These promises are God's gift to me. This is my life that I can cling to. You're going to, you're going, Bible reading now is not a chore. It's like a, this is a lot, my lifeline. It changes the way you raise your children. Changes the way you view your marriage. Gives you an eternal perspective. Changes the way you view your career. It's temporary. How can I leverage it for the kingdom? It changes everything about the way you live your life. It's all done with an eye towards fixing your eyes on Christ, your supreme treasure. If you're not a Christian, or if you aren't sure you've ever made Jesus the greatest treasure of your life like I'm talking about, then I want to invite you to make that decision today. Salvation is by faith in Christ alone. It's a free gift from God. It's not a result of works. You can't earn it. Nothing you can do. The only thing you can do is what Romans 10.9 says. Uh, You need to confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead and you will be saved. So what does that mean? Confessing with your mouth that Jesus is Lord means admitting uh, I'm a sinner I've been rebelling against God, uh, but I acknowledge that Jesus is Lord, and so I'm going to turn from my sin, and I'm, Jesus, you're the boss now. I'm going to start following you. You're my king. And then believing in your heart that God has raised him from the dead uh, means believing uh, the gospel. It means believing that I, I can't be made right by my works. I can only be made right with God through the atoning death and resurrection of Jesus. That's my only hope. So I'm not going to try to depend on my works to make myself right with God anymore, to work my way. Uh, to improve myself, I can't. You need to despair of your own works. You need to trust in the finished work of Christ alone on your behalf on the cross. You can do that right where you sit, right in your living room or your car or wherever you might be uh, this morning. Uh, You can do that, and I pray that you would. And if you do, um, please reach out to us and let us know. Please message us on Facebook, uh, or uh, you could also uh, fill out the digital connection card. There's the link in the description. Uh, We want to be able to pray with you. We want to be able to help you to take next steps in learning how to follow Jesus. Um, so please let us know if you do make that uh, decision. Um, and for those of you who are believers, I pray that 
uh, you are encouraged this Easter. Uh, I pray uh, that, um, that Jesus has promised when he says that I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever lives and believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. I pray that that promise and that truth would transform your life, that it would transform the way that you approach death, and that it would transform the way that you live from here on out, and that you'd never be the same again. Uh, I love you. Jesus loves you. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word. Uh, we thank you for your promises. Jesus, we praise you for your resurrection and that you have overcome the grave. God, would you be glorified this Easter Sunday. In Jesus' name, amen.